you know, you can lose everything if you don't have, uh, you know, protection or the right pockets or the ability to, um, you know, double down or to invest, you know, what's down. You know, it was a scary two months. We did not want a, a really long, widespread, talk to the whole world process. Irrespective of price, just that you're not doing that with the person that you're going to potentially work with. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So are you looking to sell your business? My guess is you're actually not. My guess is that you'd like to know that you could sell your business down the road, but right now you're busy building it. And if that's the case, standard operating procedures can be your secret sauce. These are the documents that you need to show your employees how to do their work. And we've just developed a new ebook. You can get it at builttosell.com slash SOP. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast that helps you punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating the sale of your company. I'm your host, John Warlow, and I'm thrilled to be back in your earbuds again this week with a very special episode. This is actually the first in a two-part episode. Robert Glazier built and sold a company, and now he's on the other side of the negotiation table acquiring companies. And so we've structured this two-part interview. The first part describes the sale of his company, Acceleration Partners, and the second part talks about what he looks for in an acquisition wearing his acquirer's hat. I think that together they make a great combination. So this week we'll talk to Robert about his sale, next week about what he looks for in an acquisition. Before we go any further, this is a bit of a departure for us. And I'm kind of curious about whether you like the discussion with acquirers and whether that brings a new dynamic you'd like to hear more of. So tell me what you think. You can reach me at John Orlo on Twitter. That's too hard to spell. So go to builttosell.com. You can figure out how to spell it, but it's at John Orlo. And I would love to hear your thoughts on hearing from acquirers and whether that's interesting to you on this show. But before we get further into the intro, let me uh, set up Robert Glazier. So Robert built a company, Acceleration Partners, in the affiliate marketing slash partner marketing space. Started from scratch, didn't raise any outside capital, built it to $28 million in revenue before selling it to Mountain Gate Capital last year. Big exit and a really exciting entrepreneur who's got a lot of experience to share. I took a lot of, of, of lessons away from this episode. I really liked the discussion we had around the difference between owner incentives and manager incentives. So the beginning of the growth of a company. Oftentimes, owner and manager incentives are completely aligned. But then as the business grows, they start to pull apart. Whereas the managers may want to grow the business in perpetuity and the, the owner starts to realize they've got a lot of money on the, on the line and start to think about selling. And that's really a, a divergence that I think Robert did a great job describing for the first time on the show, I think, and I, I really enjoyed it. He talks a lot about his phantom equity structure and how he thought about that, which I found really fan fantastic and, and, and interesting. He also talks about the typical structure of a private equity deal. I know a lot of the deals that you're probably looking at right now are private equity backed. So I think Robert has some really interesting insights to share on private equity deals, in particular in a roll-up situation. So here to tell you his entire story, part one of a two-part episode, is Robert Glazer. 
Robert Glazer, welcome to Build Star Radio. Thanks, John. Uh, good to be here. And uh, as I said, it feels, I feel, you know, I was sitting in a classroom that you were teaching five years ago and uh, I took, I took your notes were very helpful. So Dude, uh, <laughs> teaching in air quotes, let's, <laughs> let's be, let's be clear. Teaching in air quotes. I took a lot and, of notes. We, they were all very relevant. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, you know, we met at, for our listeners, we met at something called the Entrepreneur's Master's Program, which is an EO program done out of the MIT campus at Endicott House. It's a beautiful you know, building an amazing program. I went through it as a student, uh, and when it was called Birthing a Giants, which has yeah. got to be the most pretentious name on <laughs> on the planet. But that's where we met, where I had the opportunity to kind of come back as alumni, which was really was really special. Yeah, you know, and if anyone ever did, and I think some people like a longitudinal five or ten year study of the people in that program, I'd say there's about a eighty percent exit rate at five to ten years. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, I, I got a ton out of it, and and uh, and it was great to meet you. So let's talk about Acceleration Partners. So, for those uh, listeners who don't know the company, what what did you guys do? What 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 industry are you in? Yeah, so we uh, we I joke with people. I think we're kind of a big fish in a small pond. Uh, although the pond's been getting bigger, uh, we have been an agency focused on affiliate and and partner marketing, which has always been a, a, a niche part of, of e-commerce has existed for almost uh, 20 years, but has gone through a whole bunch of different uh, ups and downs and some scandals. And uh, back in the early 2000s, which I wrote about um, in a book uh, called Performance Partnerships. But basically, you know, because uh, people, I always explain what we do and then they ask me for an example. So now I just go right to it. But we, we as opposed to buying clicks or impressions, we help brands, uh, let's say Acme, uh, you know, .com, uh, connect with hundreds of bloggers or product comparison sites or deal sites or people that control content that write about things related to what Acme sells. They, instead of paying for a clicker link that we uh, a clicker impression, they they would write about it, list to a product, talk about it. It's all tracked through software, um, and uh, then they're paid on a performance basis, whether that's as a percentage of revenue or for lead or, or otherwise. So it actually looks similar. For years, um, a lot of people got their service and their technology in one place. And then the industry just started to look more like other industries where like you you have Facebook the product, but you have a Facebook agency, right? You have uh, Google the product, but you have a Google you know search agency. Um, you know, we are the agency to people looking to launch uh, mostly enterprise clients doing uh, partner and affiliate marketing programs. Got it. Go. So if I'm, you know, whatever, Nike, and I want uh, Mark Cuban to endorse yeah. my shoes, they might hire you and your firm to build out a, a partnership program for them. Yeah, it would, it would be less about one person than like we want to get thousands of partners and use software okay. to, to, to kind of scale up um, and, and build a program with thousands of partners rather than, you know, if it's a one-off thing, it might be a PR or business development type uh, relationship. Got it. That's a good distinction. Did you own the underlying software that you used or did you third-party... Uh, you know, so we're something. like we're like the key integration partner to a bunch of big platforms in our industry. Like right? we're like, we're kind of like a gold or platinum partner. So again, similar if you were to buy a hub, uh, you know, Salesforce or Infusionsoft or Google, you know, there's an agency that is a certified partner in sure. that. There's not like a single dominant one in our industry. So we tend to partner with like all of them and try to be one of their strongest agency partners. Yeah, there's there's two, yeah there's a, there's a handful of big 
players and, and yeah. you were if you will agnostic of any one player you you could play the sandbox role. yeah we Got play because people come to us and they say we like the software and we say great we can we can work with that software great and so talk about the staffing model uh how did you staff this company like who who are the kind yeah. of key functional roles in the company so we you know we in very intentionally and early on maybe it's my background in consulting we always two things that we did different than competitors in our industry, you know, they tended to have more of this marketing model where you're sold by high level and then it's dropped to a junior. And then the person's working on 20 accounts. Like often in our industry, it was an average of 20 accounts per, you know, person. Our, our model is more like consulting and that there's a senior or director or a strategist. There's kind of a manager, an associate. The associate would be more behind the scenes. You'd kind of you know, talk to the manager week to week, you talk to the director kind of bi-weekly or, or, or monthly. And we have almost a one-to-one -one ratio of programs to, to, to people on the delivery team, you know, still to this day. We just believe that building these programs requires and, and, and recruiting partners requires a higher resource level. I was trying to, I was explaining to someone yesterday, like you're saying, look, you can build a sales team with one person or 10 people, it's very likely to have different, you know, volume and ROI based on how big of a team you want to put against it. So we, we tend to manage some of the largest global programs in the world. We have programs that have 10 or 15 people on one account in wow. across multiple What countries. was your revenue per employee? Um, that's a good question. Uh, Matt, Matt's our, our numbers guy. I think, I think it's all, it, it's in the 200,000 200 grand. Range. Yeah. 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 Two I was going to say, cause it, I mean, it, yeah. it sounds like a relatively expensive model to staff. If you've got sort of engagement manager level people on the, you know, on the client side and then you've got manager. Yeah. We are not the yeah. cheapest. Like we are, we are, we are in the upper right corner of like high quality, high price. And again, I mean, I've done the math for people when they're like, oh, and so-and-so's $3,000 a month. I was like, but here's the math of an account manager working on 20 accounts. You're paying $500 an hour. So I understand it sounds cheaper, but <laughs> I, I, trust me, it's not necessarily cheaper. Yeah. And did you start this business from scratch or what was... I did. Uh, sort of accidentally uh, got into running a program for a company called Tiny Prince. That was uh, very early in, in the uh, first kind of high-end photo birth card, holiday card announcements. And uh, the, the affiliate program there just actually connected with tons of mom bloggers. It was one of the first programs that connected with all these content partners when at the time everything was very discount and deal oriented. In the affiliate world, uh, that company sold for Shutter to Shutterfly for like $300 million. The affiliate program was a huge part of the company by, by the end of it. And, you know, I, I, uh, it's a long story how I got there, but classic, I, I still haven't met anyone who meant to start an agency. I was saying this to someone the other day. <laughs> so I, true. Because, because they were talking about non-compete and uh, around a deal we were looking at, they're like, trust me, I'm not starting another agency. So, <laughs> so you know, I, we were solving this problem and then I couldn't do it anymore. And then I hired some more people. And then what happened was all the people left and went around Silicon Valley from Shutterfly to other companies. They're like, look, we want to build this sort of program. And they would call and that's it just sort of happened from there. Yeah, yeah. How did you how did you grow the business? Was it out of cash flow? Did you bring in investors? What was the No, it was totally out of cash flow. For better or for worse, I always believed in in making money. I never was comfortable with the concept of losing money or I would have figured out a SaaS business and done a lot better. Um, but uh yeah, we just, you know, we we grew uh or, organically um off cash, you know, off cash flow uh and um you know, we we had a we we had an almost ten year, uh, you know, 
combined growth rate of twenty five percent. I mean, it was pretty consistent year after wow. year after year. Good for you, and and all out of cash flow, which is amazing. One of the questions I I, I although have profit in my... and cash flow are not always the same, and and in fact, in the years we grew the fastest, cash was strained the most. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think that's the classic trap that people fall into. Yeah, it's on paper profitable, but your clients are paying 60, 90 days later. Yeah, you start you start moving up the client stream and you get to enterprise clients and they play high amounts of money very reliably 90 days later. <laughs> you know, and you need to staff those programs. So yeah. so the gap, the gap grows. Yeah, yeah. For sure. The faster you grow, the more cash you suck up. So as you grow, uh did you reach a point where you're like, man? Like, I'd like to take a little bit of cash out of this business. Like, I'd like to upgrade my car. I'd like to pay off my house. Was there a point where you're like, this business is thirsty for cash, and I'd like I, I'd like to be the customer for a moment? Yeah, and but look, I, I'm a figure out, like I'm a make it better growth person, and I think you know this is one of my learnings around. I think a lot of people get in the growth for growth's sake. You know, it just feels good to keep uh, growing. So I, I just it always felt like the the right thing to do. It felt like I'd be starving. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, I was fine. I don't, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of needs. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 the perception in some of these cases that the owner is making more and more money is very different than the reality. Again, even if you saw the P and L, it doesn't tell you the story on, 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 on the cash flow. Um, in fact, you know, you know, years where uh, sales slowed, you know, it just, it would improve, you know, it would improve, uh, it improved dramatically. It just, it just always seemed like when we got to a point, there was a whole nother bunch of investments that everyone wanted to make. And actually that can really become a trap, particularly when you get stuck in a, just a revenue growth mindset and not a earnings growth mindset. Mm, mm, interesting. How did you retain these very highly sought after people? I'm, I'm just going back to your model of yeah. employees where you've got these very senior people that are interfacing with these very enterprise, like very slick enterprise customers who are, let's face it, in really high demand yeah. right now. Uh, what was what was the retention model? I mean, were they getting options? Were they getting deferred comp in some in some way? Yeah. So so we had a great culture. We've won over twenty five different best places to work awards. Actually, you know, the talent was super fractured in our industry, and we need senior people. So we were a company that went fully remote ten years ago. Like hmm. we were literally hiding it from clients because we didn't want them to not take us seriously. You know, we had these. Fortune 500 clients and, you know, global. And, and, and honestly, it was something we were like, we used the word distributed, like, it, I, and then I wrote a book on it years later. Um, but, but we had this, you know, the, our culture was very, it's funny, everyone's focused on remote, but I always say it was very, uh, it was a very high performance. Uh, it was accountability and flexibility. If you were accountable and high performer, because everything we did was measured and we did well when our clients did well, you could have that flexibility. And so that was really attractive to people, you know, who wanted that um, in their life cycle. We had a lot of young parents as employees who had kids and, and, and wanted uh, flexibility. Um, and that was, you know, we, we um, you know, we focused on <clears throat> really being a good place to work. We did a bunch of things that were just a little different in our industry. We just promote people when ready. Like we never, you know, we would promote them when ready. We tried to uh, eliminate sort of two weeks notice this concept of open transitions like hey when you want to leave just let us know and we'll let you work here and help you find a, a new job so you know some of the stuff worked some of the stuff didn't but you know we tried to be a good place to work i mean typically agencies 
are, are kind of churn and burn. But you know, I ninety percent of the leaders of our company have sort of grown up in the in the organization. So we focused a lot on training and leadership training and 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 just you know moving people up and. You know that's where growth is helpful because uh, it, it just creates new roles and new growth paths uh, every year for if you have employees that want to move up. Back to the question: <laughs> Did yeah. they get any sort of incentive-based comp? Oh, sorry any, on that. So, so uh, yeah, so so we have bonuses and and we did roll out a phantom equity plan um, okay. for I would say sort of the top third of the company uh, at the how, time. Yeah. How did you structure your phantom equity program? I think a lot of people have heard the term phantom equity, but I yeah. think it means a lot of different things. To different people. What was the structure of yours? Uh, we changed it a few times and you got to be careful based on tax stuff. You know, I, you know, everyone hires the cheap lawyer early on and then they wish they hired <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the, the more expensive one. Um, but basically, you know, it, 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 it meant to mimic the value creation of, of the company. Um, and, and so, you know, at the point that you came in, there would sort of be a mark to market and then there was vesting and then we had, we would use, you know, a, a metric to, to value it. And then, you know, if you left or if the company was sold, you know, there could be a liquidation point. I, I actually, I, I actually wanted, a, uh, uh, to have a way to make sure that, you know, if people were there for a time, a lot of companies, it's like, you lose everything if you leave. Um, and I think that gets you into some dragged out problems or lawsuits of, you know, someone's say someone's been there from 1 million to 10 million and they're just not the right person from 10 to, to 20. I think you'd rather pay them for what they've done than try to have them hang on or you try to push them out and then they, you know, are pissed because they have this equity. So th I think that that's the downside. So, you know, I, I, I tried to do something a little bit different, which was to let people, um, you know, hold on to the value that they had created and, and actually, you know, if they left, you know, get, get some of that, even in, in lieu of a liquidity event. However, you know, it would also, it wouldn't be a, you know, it would probably be a lower value, but at least was, was something. So if, if somebody left after, to use your example from, they, they start at 1 million, they go to 10, they leave, uh, you were paying them a portion of what they would have earned on a liquidity event? Well, they could, they, there was just a basic valuation. And then you could say that you were here from one to 9 million and you had 1%. So that's, you know, 1% of that 9 million or whatever it was, you can do a formula. And then it's just sort of, it's executed as a, as a, as a bonus, really as a revenue bonus. Okay. And, and they would, yeah. they would earn that. They would, they would basically get a check for that amount of money, money when they left. Yes. Got it. Got it. And, and so in a way, didn't that incentivize people to leave? Like if they needed to buy a house or a car or whatever, they're like, Hey, I've got this kind of realized uh, value. It didn't because, um, you know, the, the way, the way you have to do not to get into the complication, do these things, but that value probably is not going to rep. That has to be more of like a book value, right? It's probably not going to represent market value. So if you were wow. to do that, you'd probably be leaving some, some money on the table because got you can't, it. you can't, you know, those sort of valuations have to be pretty basic. They're not, they don't tend to be mark to market type uh, events. Got it. Yeah. Book value obviously being different yeah. uh, than, than the So we had, we had, we had, we, we had a, we had a formula, right. And, and, but again, yes, I, I don't know that it's an incentive to leave again. I think if you were there and you, like I said, I, I, one of the things I think you see, and, and someone once told me this, most true thing I've ever seen growing a company, I think every time the company doubles, you break half your people and half your processes, right? And I think if someone 
if someone got you was the right person from stage A to B, then you, they, they should be valued for that. And, and, and then you move on and you reallocate that for someone from, from B to C, right? You sort of just, you're resetting the index for the next person, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the formula you guys used to value the company for the purposes of the Phantom Equity Program? Um, it changed a few times and we had to make changes, obviously, as it got more complicated. Um, I think it was just a very simple uh, revenue multiple um, at the time. Do you recall what multiple of revenue it was? Uh, it might uh, it might have been one x or something like that. One x revenue. Yeah. yeah, that'd be pretty pretty common for a services business. Yeah, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. That's super helpful. So, how big did you get this company before you decided to sell? Um, we, uh, let's see, I think in 2020, we were up to, we ended up finishing the year high 28 million, um, something in that range in revenue. 28 million. Yeah. In revenue. And how many employees? Yeah. Uh, it's changed so much. I think it was probably about, uh, a little under 200. Got it. Got it. Wow. This is, like, this is a huge run. And, and how long did you own the business for? When did you start it? Uh, I've been, it had been 14 years. So 2007. Wow. Congratulations. That's incredible growth. And you were able to hang on to all the equity along the way. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, we, we give a good amount to team and I, and I think that's, that's important, but yeah, you know, services businesses, when, when someone does a service business, I hear they're raising money. Like it's not, you know, you see all the debates with Goldman Sachs and all that stuff. It's very tricky raising money in a service business because it's the people. And then you get into this debate where the profits of, is it the people that are selling and generating it? How much do they want? Like when you think about Goldman and the shareholders, they can argue is 10 million enough per partner or like what should go to the shareholders and what should go to the partner? So I, I've not seen a lot of success with companies, you know, service businesses that have raised money. I just think it's, it's, it, it, if you can, yeah, it, 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 it becomes problematic. Yeah. But in your case, it didn't matter because you didn't, you didn't, didn't have matter. to. And nope. Yeah. You were able to, to grow profits in, in lockstep. I'm John Morlow. You're listening to Built to Sell Radio. And my guest is Robert Glazer, founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners. What changed? Like what triggered you to want to sell? You know, as a business starts to get that big, um, it, it, I almost felt like I had this house that I couldn't afford, uh, you know, a little bit from you own the house, but like the maintenance is a lot. And so, you know, we were doing fine and, and COVID hit and, you know, it was really scary, you know, for, for four to eight weeks. And, and, you know, we had actually gotten to a point, we had chased revenue growth for, for a lot because we knew that if we got over 10 million, that was a certain threshold in terms of value creation and, you know, businesses under 10 million, uh, and, and certain EBITDA level, they just, they tend to be too founder centric. So I knew I wanted to create something that was valuable beyond myself. And so, you know, we got big enough and got to that point, but in doing that, we were constantly reinvesting and reinvesting and, you know, it reached a point where we're about to sort of harvest those rewards and, you know, the management team understandably wants to keep growing and bringing people in. And I'm looking like, look, these numbers are getting, you know, pretty big. And, and, you know, one of the things I would say is I had this half a million dollar, uh, home equity line. Uh, well, for a while, our, our, you know, HELOC, uh, our credit line was personally guaranteed by, you know, me, um, until we got big enough. And I had this half a million dollar sort of emergency equity 
line on, on my house and use. And, you know, for, for, for what, for years, that would have covered nine months of payroll. And, and, you know, by that time it would have covered like not even a month of payroll. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I, I had thought about it kind of like, Hey, I'd love to do this, but I'm not sure I want to just reinvesting or it, you know, this is a big checkbook. Like, you know, what it takes to backstop this business right now is, is, is more than I have. <laughs> um, and I think COVID was sort of a, a wake up call on that too, in that, you know, you can, it, you know, you can lose everything if you don't have, uh, you know, protection or the right pockets or the ability to, um, you know, double down or to invest, you know, what's down, you know, it was a scary two months, um, until things sort of stabilized. Eventually our industry, you know, did pretty well. Um, and, 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 but I think coming out of that saying like, wow, you know, me being the sole backstop for this, you know, having to maybe reach in and find, you know, millions of dollars, you know, in emergency money, like it just felt like too much concentration. Gosh, I, I, I think you just articulated in, in a really eloquent way, what so many people have felt, but, but maybe, maybe at least in my own experience have failed to articulate quite so well that, that you were living in a house you can't afford. And, and it's such a good point because your rich you, uncle gave you the house, but you, you know, the oil bills and the, and the taxes right. and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we talk about your, your company becoming a huge part of your net worth and, and how that gets a bit scary at times, but, but it's more than, it, it sounds like for you, it was more than just a concentration of equity in one asset. It was, it was okay. If we have a month where things go really sideways, you know, your payroll at, at, at 28. Right. I mean, this is a service business. So assume your payroll is 90% of, you know, those costs and that's all people, yeah. you know, and, and I'm like, wow, I, you know, you're at a, and you know, this gets personal, but you're a decision between you have to put your, you know, you're putting your family's welfare against the welfare of other, like I, sure. and I just increasingly like, was like, I don't ever want to be in that position to be like, well, do I have to choose between my family's well-being and the well-being of my employees? Like it, it, it um, you know, I've seen people get into to trouble or you can, you know, just they're good opportunities and you're growing. But yeah, if you look at those numbers and you start to just say, yeah, a tough two months or a couple of clients don't pay or you, you're investing a bunch and, you know, coming up with a couple million dollars when you have all that wealth tied up in the house, it's like you have the house without a home equity line. And by the way, the home equity line is backed by the house. So it's all circular. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's really interesting. At what point were you able to remove the personal guarantee at what revenue level? Uh, I think that was the year, I think when we got above 10, um, I sort of went to the bank. Um, actually that came out of a forum, uh, or, or, or our board of advisors. We had actually built a board of advisors that was non-fiduciary, but we had presented them like a board meeting. It was great practice. And one of the board members who really didn't even understand our business, that was one of the discussions. Like you go tell them you're leaving if you don't do it. And you say, look, we're at this thing. So I think it was about uh, 10 million. And yeah, that was a $2 million equity line backed by my house basically, you know, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's a real milestone to get that personal guarantee removed, right? Yeah. That it's felt fun, really, finally. really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Again, the numbers had gotten really, they got, they get big. Right. Um, and, and you look around, yeah, the number, the numbers are big. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. So what happens next? So you're, you're at this point, you stabilize after the worst of COVID the first four or six weeks when everything looks like it's going upside yeah. down, you, you've got, you stabilize. What, what, what did you, did you shop the company? Did you hire like a banker? What was the next step? Uh, so we survived. We got through the summer. 
there have been some interest. We've been having some discussions before COVID. We had sort of started because I had discussed with the management team. I said, look, we're going to look into this route. Um, I started to learn about sort of, there was some interest in our industry. There really hadn't been private equity and platform in our industry. Our industry was starting to consolidate. The tech players were consolidating, the service players. So a lot of discussions were going on. Then COVID hit. We stopped all the discussions with everyone and said, we got to just go man the ship, you know, stop the bleeding by the summer, you know, then the industry actually did very well towards the end of COVID when people started to realize, Hey, when our budgets are precarious and tight or whatever, we'd rather pay only on a performance basis than sure. lay out money and not know what we're getting back. Um, we helped companies liquidate stuff. Um, so I think by the fall, when, um, you know, we felt like we could, take our breath again and looked around, we started restarted some of those discussions. Um, there was a bunch of interest. Uh, we had two or three people pretty interested. Uh, and, you know, based on all of the, I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the experience share and EO and YPO. And I just called all my friends who had done transaction otherwise. And they're all like, hire a banker. Like, yeah, I mean, that is, that is the advice I give everyone else. I mean, the, the people I see trying to do it themselves, these businesses don't sell usually um, that, that again, just in my experience and what I've, what I've seen and, or they focus on the cost of the banker and not, you know, what the Delta is <laughs> in, 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 in their cost versus what competitive does. I mean, I had multiple friends tell me that, you know, because a lot of particularly what investors or private equity firms do is they, you know, they get this shot at this business, they discover it. It's not, you think they'd make a really good offer before it went to market. What most people told me was, you know, that last offer that they got before they took it to market was 30 or 40% below where they ended up sort of on average. And so after I heard that story five times, you know, I'm, I, I learned, I learned slowly, <laughs> <a> slow but, <laughs> you know, we went to a couple of the best banks in our, in our industry, um, and, and, you know, picked, picked a good one and, you know, they understood, we did not want to, uh, really long widespread talk to the whole world process. Like we had, some people already interested. We had some other people we thought we were interested and we wanted to a pretty, you know, smaller uh, controlled process. I mean, we were very focused on the right type of partner uh, fit, who the people were. It wasn't necessarily going to be a, you know, looking for the the highest bid. But um, I think, I think making a market is extremely important in terms of of urgency and price and yeah, make, uh, making yeah. a market for folks listening that may not understand that term, meaning getting multiple potential acquirers to the table yeah. at a similar time. So that they're all kind of looking at the same information at a similar time. And look, this was I, still, this was still September, 2020. Um, and so look, the banks and law firms, uh, I mean, they were, they were being very <laughs> aggressive. I mean, I got a call from our law firm some a year later that they were referenced and they were great. I mean, the price that they quoted them for almost the same size deal was almost double. Uh, so hmm. this was, th th there were still, People were being aggressive with with M and A business in, in, yeah, in the yeah, fall of yeah. 2020. I want to make sure people understood. Also, you referenced hire a banker. You don't mean walking into Bank of America and hiring like no, teller or whatever. No. You're talking about an investment banker. They're yeah. also referred to as a mergers and acquisitions professional or business broker, depending on the size of your company. You know, the very low end business broker and market yeah. sort of M and A professional, and then on the high end when you're selling big big companies, they often yeah. refer to as and look, there's generalists and specialists, and we went and talked to three specialists in our industry with experience in our industry. That's another thing I think that 
I think there's a huge difference when people have repetitive experience in your industry. Because what I've actually learned too with bankers is that a lot of the times the the, the highest bidder is the one who lost out on the last deal with that <laughs> banker who come who comes in, right? They know the person who wanted to buy X agency and lost out on on the last one. Yeah, although I I think, and I wondered if to what extent you felt this way or you considered this that that if you go with an investment banker or an M and A professional with an industry specialization, the risk you run is that they make their living selling, selling companies to one or two businesses, and they're not going to jeopardize that relationship with that acquirer to get an extra three or four percent for you. Did you a were you aware of that? potential criticism of going with an industry partner and and B, if so, how did you sort of get your head around going with one? Yeah, no, that, that never came. It's interesting. Uh, I didn't see that. Um, our, uh, I, you know, I, I had just talked to, again, personal references uh, and experience of people who, you know, just felt like they were very well served. Um, again, our, our banker had actually worked with one of the top people that was interested, I, I thought that was uh, an asset <laughs> in terms of some from trust there. Um, but they they were good at you know they were good at what they did. So I I, I can I can see that. Um, I think we just knew that there was interest in our industry. There was interest in building a platform in our industry. So I think we thought we just had a strong feeling it was going to be someone you know in our industry that was going to yeah. be the better fit for us. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I want to explore something, and again, it's it's sensitive, and I acknowledge that. So, yeah. if, it, if it's something you can't talk about, I, I totally get it. But you referenced earlier that you built a twenty eight million dollar business. You know, you've got a five hundred grand HELOC guaranteed on against your home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you two two of, things. Why well, the HELOC, and then I had the actual you know equity line for the business. Why the credit? That yeah. You were there for a rainy day. I mean, y- y- you had risked personally, your family, you personally, Robert Glazer had risked a lot to get the business to where it was, it is. And, and, and in my shoes, I feel like you therefore deserve the lion's share of the reward. Like you were all in personally. And while your managers may have come along for the ride and they were key people and they were, you know, at the end of the day, it was not their home on the line. And so when it comes time to selling, um, I, I'm envisioning a conversation among some managers who may have only a small amount of phantom equity or only a little bit of upside in, in terms of selling, saying, hey, like Robert, what's the big rush here? Like we, we stabilized from COVID, things are okay. We've got it to 28 million. Why don't, we, why don't we go to 50? Was there that sort of tension among the management team that there were some people that they were like, Robert, what, like, I don't want to work for some private equity company. Like, wh- why do we have to sell? Well, no, there weren't. Um, I actually don't think there, there were because I think, um, I think we had the right people who had actually invested a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, if maybe not, not, not money, and had taken different risks to come to the business, you know, when we were smaller and, and you know, maybe not at the same level, but I think they took risks. But, I mean, this came more get into it, but... We, this was really more of a beginning than an end. Like this was a, how are we going to become a first hundred million dollar revenue company in our industry? Huge upside. Like I, I think that that we could do this ourselves, you know, and and, and continue to 
you know, uh, you know, use the the match and 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 the lighter, or we could like get some gas on this. And when we look at what that really means for everyone, and and particularly the type of partner that we worked with that 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 really believed in heavily incentivizing, you know, management and and tying that together, I, I think that's what really excited everyone. They wanted to grow and do that, and they could see that like I was not probably willing to to fund that the growth at the, at the same rate that the business could have could have supported. And actually, when I look back a year later now on what we have done in a year and what we could, you know, what we could have done on our own and where the business is now, I mean, that's a no-brainer. Hey, this is Built to Sell Radio. My guest today is Robert Glazer, the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners. My name is John Warlow. But you'll you'll acknowledge that there is a difference of incentives and a yeah. difference of p- personal situations, right? Like if you're a manager, you want to work on like bigger companies, more exciting deals, bigger budgets, more, you know, like, yeah, you know, the LinkedIn resume needs to get primed up. I want to go from VP to senior VP to executive. Like I want, that's what I want as a manager. Yeah. Right. But you're an owner. Like, let's be honest, you could walk away and never work again it doesn't really make a difference to you personally, whether your title goes from VP to senior VP. To, so the, the incentives, right. I'm just, I'm acknowledging, I, yeah. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that for an owner, the incentives and the risk, it, it's at this point in the, in the company evolution where it becomes very clear that although we all row in the same rowboat and we're all happy together and we all make this, like we all make nice that we're a big family, yeah. the owner, and his or her managers are in different boats. It's at this and, point in the juncture, you are not equal. And I, and I, I agree with you. That. And I actually, but I actually think that's, that's why, so we were not equal in the sense that I think we actually got to the steady point where finally profit was a level where I could start de-risking, right? But that actually meant not growing the business and limited upside for people. And that was sort of the divergence that I saw so actually, for me, the answer was, where can we bolt on and give you guys all the upside where you can really make life-changing money over the next, you know, three to five years? Because again, I'll, I'll be okay. Um, but, but you know, um, so, so, you know, that, that's actually why we sought the type of deal that might we did. It definitely wasn't an ending. If it was an ending, people might have had a different thing than, than it was a beginning to a uh, you know, hopefully what's a, you know, 5X build of a platform. Yeah. 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 It's a really good point. And I, and I think it, it does like it, it sets up who you sold to. So let's go through that. So you, you, you make a market, you've got this, uh, this m professional who is very steeped in the kind of partner marketing yeah. field, knows all the players. Strong, offers- strong. And there was no one in partner marketing. So that was the thing, but very, so we looked at what are the closest things like agency, transactional experience, digital agency experience, and ad tech experience. So like those were the two sort of, you know, that's where they had a lot of experience. Got it. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. So yeah. they're, they're steeped in that space. Yeah. They, um, they, they shop the deal. How many sort of folks did they shop it to? How many LOIs did you get? Yeah. So, so interestingly, we had three people pretty interested and this was, this was what, this was what, once we had three people interested, I had all the advice. I don't want to do this myself. You know, one of the analogies too that someone said is like, look, this is like negotiating with someone who's by the home where you're going to live with them, right? <laughs> you know, they're, they're, 
everyone I talked to, you want distance. If you like, you know, you really want someone in the middle of this, irrespective of price, just that you're not doing that with the person that you're going to potentially work with, um, totally. which is different if you're maybe selling it and walking away on the first day, which is not at all what we were doing. Um, so, so, uh, we actually, uh, started a process. Um, we had three people already interested. Those people were kind of ahead in the work. Um, you know, we, we did sort of indications of intent. We did submit, we started scheduling management meetings. We were able to do it with all three of those first before the LOI, you know, we got one, one made a letter, one made a letter of intent before the deadline. Uh, and then, you know, we let the others know and, and there was one we just felt was a really good fit. And they basically came back, preempted the process. There was some negotiation. We felt like it was a good structure for the type of deal we did. It had all the elements that we were looking for. Uh, and, and we ended up, um, I remember my last call was with a very well-known, we, we just, we kind of canceled the management calls in the middle and, and decided to, to go with that deal. Wow. I've got so many questions there. So yeah. you got three LOIs. Were they, were they all private equity or were they some They, they were all agencies? private equity that, you know, the people there had really been, it's a super fractured space, which is interesting. The industry and no one had really one other, one of our competitors had, but the, and, and so people have been studying it and looking at it. Our investors had had a thesis on it for a couple of years. They were just very ahead of it. They understood the market. They understood a lot about it. Um, and they just had an incredible track record in marketing services businesses. And, and, and for us, that was the, that was the real differentiator also. Well, a couple of things, but yeah. What about all the big agency holding companies? Like, I'm surprised they weren't at the table. Were you intentionally looking for private equity because you wanted your management team to participate in the second kind of trial? Yeah, we, we wanted to build something. So, so you know, John said this in, in your interview with him. He and I talked about it. When an industry is rolling, and this goes into the pros and cons of a platform, when an industry is rolling up, we had a very strong culture. We believed in our business. We loved our team. And when industry is rolling up, you can either kind of be the roller, roll in, or I think you get rolled, you know, potentially depending on how fast it rolls. And so what I understood about, Hey, look, if we are the platform in this, like it's, it's our team, it's our culture. We get to go find the pieces like this, this, this sounds fun. And so that the, the, the private equity firms in, in this, you know, space have a, you know, they have a model of either minority or majority interest. You roll in a ton of equity or partners in building it over um, the next couple of years, but you own your equity, you know, in it, like you could, gives it in details, but a lot of these, depending on, you can walk, but you still own your equity, right? No one, no one can take that from you. You know, the big agency holding companies for years were doing these five-year earnout deals and stuff. And frankly, they just hadn't won any deals in, in, in the last couple of years in our industry because private equity had become so interested in marketing and services and offering this sort of model. And the other option was five-year earnout, And, and, and it, it was just, I didn't know anyone that went that route. I, I you know, when I, when I looked, talked to all my peers and, you know, other folks that were in EMP, like it, it just was, I mean, the holding companies are going to have to change their strategy because um, I, I think the earnout is just so, earnout with, with, with not having the control is just so much less attractive than putting your risk in the deal, but separating your role from your, your equity and, and your sort of championing championship of that, of that platform or partnership. Yeah, let's let's make let's make this uh, clear what you were looking at. So you had three offers, yeah, 
and and one of them was ultimately the the successful acquire was mountain gate is that right yes mountain gate mountain capital gate. yeah got it yeah and so you had two other acquires both of which were private equity groups were they proposing similar deal structures very similar deal structures and what um, was this what was this deal structure um uh, you know similar so, so majority recap uh you know ro rollover I, I guess we didn't get into the the nuance of all of them there's one thing that mountain gate does that subsequently i think is more different than than uh i i came to understand so at a high level they were all similar percentages they were in the same ballpark similar to the banking decision what a, i i just uh, I knew I knew someone who was in year three of a partnership with them, who since was Tenuity, Ben Kersner, who had a phenomenal outcome uh, and just raved about the team. And I had gotten to know them over a year or two. Uh, and similar to the banking thing, we had two firms who I also really loved who were generalists. And, and, and Mountain Gate was a specialist, and they had just done this over and over again uh, in marketing services. And both... We just had gotten to know the team and, and just the the fact that they had executed this playbook and understood the industry and we just felt like it was they were going to be the right partner for us okay so they so they made an offer what if you don't mind me asking what was yeah. the multiple of earnings that they offered uh yeah well that, that the i'll tell you in, in the industry ones because we you know not i mean marketing services uh, that, that I've seen, and again, this could go from 1 million to 10 million, you know, the, at the time, the multiples were five to, I think the most anyone in the industry had paid is like 10 or 11, you know, depending on, on size, um, with, with most of the things in the industry seemed to, they were at like an eight or nine level. Got it. And so I'm, I'm going to read yeah. into that, that you were kind of yeah. in that space somewhere. Fair, fair it, assumption. Yeah. <laughs> and got it. So so there are, we're in this sort of eight or nine space, but that's not all cash at closing, right? That's right. You're, they're buying a majority, so more than yeah. half. Is it, was it a sixty percent and then a forty percent rule? Yeah, it was a majority majority range. And 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 look, and one of the things that we didn't have the data on that time, but but the you know the vast because people tend to be focused on you know the upfront, the vast majority of uh, actually in every single company in Mount, this mountain gate fund the 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 second return has been considerably <laughs> higher than than the first um uh so and, called and, second yeah. bite of the apple yeah and and so one of the things too that was different and i've seen this in a different transaction um is you know like preferences are really important mountain gate is very big on a partnership model they are a small firm they do not operate businesses they want to be helpful uh not hurtful i know everyone says this but also you got to look at the makeup of a firm. I had a co coach of mine who was used to big buyout private equity and he's very cynical and he's been through it and he's like, look, there are these operating teams there. They're just waiting. They're ex-CEOs waiting to take your job. Like for Mountain Gate it would be a worst case scenario to have to replace a, 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 a leader that wasn't you know, going yeah. into it or someone wanting to do succession. There aren't people to run the business. The folks who worked on our deal, you know, from a the sourcing standpoint where it was our team that we've worked with since that day, but the rollover that, that, and not just me, but actually, uh, the, the phantom equity, all the management team was same percentages. Like they wanted to see everyone, you know, roll, roll, roll that in. So um, the phantom equity holders got you know, this majority of their cash up front and then, then a fairly same, significant, 
same thing. Yeah. yeah. Are you able to share? Was it 60, 40? Are you able to share that? Level yeah. yeah it, in that range. Yeah. 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 And the other two deals, uh, I'm, I'm reading in that they were similar multiples and similar equity rules. Or? Similar, similar equity rules. Uh, I, okay. and again, we never, uh, we didn't get into the details of this. And again, I probably would have learned this in the process, but, um, one of the things that mountain gate does is that everyone has the same security. So they're, they're, cash that they put in the deal and invest is the same security, same preferences as uh, anyone who rolls in. There's no way for them to do well and not us to do well. And, and again, if you're going to talk about partnership, that is a partnership model. Like I have seen other offers. And I was part of one where the rollover was uh, sub, uh, subordinate to preferred equity, right? There's a way for, you know, they're saying, look, your rolled over dollars are not the same as our uh, hard dollars, and that creates two two classes of of shareholders. And this is this is a big part of their model. And did you get a sense of how what their thesis is for for improving the valuation? Because marketing services, in your own yeah. description, like they're, they're they're not getting huge multiples. Even if you grew the business bigger and bigger, the multiple increase is not going to be, you're not going to double or triple the multiple. It's going to be a small increase. Yeah. Like what's the thesis to, well, like they have how averaged they get out about four X return <laughs> the first five companies. So, in, uh, but yeah, how so, do they do that? What's, what's the thesis? So the thesis is, um, customer centric and is to figure out, you know, it, they have a build and buy strategy. So, you know, what, and, and, so tech enablement is, is what anyone needs to get a premium. You know, if you're building a larger company these days, some sort of technology that helps you do what you do better. Um, and then, you know, they did this with Elite SEM and Tenuity. And, you know, we hired a, a, a group to interview all of our customers, look at the market, figure out sort of what, what did our customers want to buy and what do they want to buy from us that we didn't have? And this is where they've had tremendous success. There are a lot of things focused on, look, private equity has a million different flavors, right? There's the cost-cutting private equity. This, this is not, you know, this is growth. There's the sort of scale private equity. This is true growth. So they, what they've been really successful is one plus one equals three. What are the other things that we could add organically or buy that our existing customers would want to buy? Those cust new customers would want to buy our services where it is not just buying for scale, but buying, because that's, again, that's the one plus one equals three. Um, and so that, that formula, so we sat down, they paid a, a substantial amount of money for this initial market research, which was both talking to our customers, and this is what they do at the beginning of everyone, and then also looking at the market. And we sort of built a map of, okay, by the end of our four or five year period, this is what our revenue should be. This is what the breakdown, you know, we're planning on 25% of the revenue to be in services that we didn't even offer a year ago, and we had a, a real thesis for what people were going to want from a partner marketing services firm and where things were going to consolidate in the industry. Um, and that really drives our, our M&A path and our map and, and, and everything we do. So I was super impressed with this is not, again, the, the worst, they would be, they are not the type of person who would just tell us to buy something for scale. Um, because that, that's just putting two things together. <laughs> that's not getting the cross-sell, upsell margin improvement from it. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I and, you know, appreciate you, you sticking with me there through that explanation. Uh, and for folks who want to get your 
lens on how you think about it from a buyer's perspective, because I now know with Mountain Gates backing, you're now buying companies. We're going to yeah. do that in our next episode next week. So make sure you check that out. I want to finish today's episode <laughs> with a quick lightning round we call yeah. due diligence. It's time for due diligence, the point in the show where our guests answer a series of rapid fire questions. But I'm just looking for a quick, short answer to a yeah. series of questions. You into this? I'm good. Okay. Slimiest tactic an acquirer tried to use on you to pull the wool over your eyes? Um, honestly, we didn't have any. We had great people we talked with, and it was so fast. Uh, so I can just tell you the one I've heard the most, and that is the quick LOI and then the six-month drag out, right? I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a group with someone, you know, one of these peer groups in which they – after his company was acquired, uh, he, they were told by the department that like they renegotiated the last second because you get exhausted. You get just physically exhausted emotionally. But that was like literally their tactic was to come in at the 11th hour and lower the price. And that was just part of the business model. So, you know, the one, the way, I think the way most entrepreneurs, you can really insulate yourself against that with, and they're necessary in this market, but short windows, like 45 day, 60 day windows where, by the end of 30 days, you know this thing is moving or it's not. Um, it seems to me like the longer it goes, the more one side's going to end up overwhelmed or underwhelmed. So I, I felt super lucky that we had a very quick thing with highly ethical people. Um, so I, I didn't see anything slimy directly. <laughs> Biggest mistake you made in the process? Um, I, I think, it, and this will go to our second episode, I, I wish I'd pay more attention to how our industry valued companies, right? Because I think, and, and really paid attention to that in our own metrics. I think we tried to keep growing for growth sake. Ours is a EBITDA oriented industry. And I think if we had oriented ourselves around that and our management philosophy and stuff earlier, it was hard to get people off the revenue growth mindset after being on it uh, for so many years. Um, uh, the other thing I would just say is, is, it is physically and mentally exhausting and debilitating the due diligence process. It actually takes months to recover from. And I, I've talked to people at the beginning of it and they're really, I'm just, just prepare yourself. This is going to be terrible. Like the, even in a good deal, like it's, it, it is. And I remember actually one day we are international and they, we law firm sent us 22 questions about the one Italian employee we had and whether we, you know, what, whether we used, like certain algorithmic hiring in Italy. And I just like lost it. I was like, I, I sent the investor note. I was like, this is just ridiculous. I, he's like, you're, you're hitting grade four deal fatigue. <laughs> he's like, it happens to everyone. Like I, you know, and you're at this point, you just want to like go screw it. He's like, you just gotta, you need a good night's sleep. So I, it is, it, it's a real, those 60, 90, whatever days, I think will be the longest of your life. And, and you should prepare for that. One resource you would recommend other entrepreneurs use a, 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 an online course, a conference. We've already talked about EMP, a uh, something that people can 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 buy to educate themselves about the exit process. Um, your book's pretty good. I don't want to uh, pitch that on people. I, I, I'm not sure it's much as uh, buying as it is. I would find people that have done what it is that you want to do in your industry and buy them dinner. Like 
take them at that hour and take a notepad and ask them these questions. What did they regret? What would they wish they had learned? To me, all of that peer advice was the most valuable thing that I had during the process. Trophy you bought yourself to commemorate the exit. Uh, what a, you know, from, from a health standpoint, actually, I bought a, uh, infrared sauna that was the, and, and, a and, uh, what are those cordless vacuums? I wanted one of those <laughs> for a while. <laughs> yeah, a big, Robert Glaze, you sold his business for millions and he bought I, a vacuum. I'm not, that's I'm the not way a, we're going to market a, the episode. But that's me. I'm not a, that's our investors. I'm not a trophy guy, but I, I, I bought a I, vacuum. Yeah. Um, why can't I think of oh, Dyson? Those really cool, you know, okay. Uh, well, you buy yourself a, a higher yeah. end one, <laughs> yeah, right? A t totally overpriced vacuum. And I bought you had a, me uh, an infrared sauna, by the and way. And I bought an infrared sauna, uh, because I needed it at that point, too. It was the middle of winter, it was the middle of COVID. Um, so I, 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 I yeah, that was that was I, the advice I actually got from a lot of folks. And having been, it was don't buy anything for six to 12 months, like just. Wait and see how it plays out, how you feel. A lot of people regretted things that I, they bought <laughs> after those events. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Sage advice. Um, we're gonna do it around two next week, but for folks who wanna reach out, is there a place they can learn about Acceleration Partners or you personally? Where would sure. you want people to? Uh, yeah, Acceleration Partners, you can Google it. It's probably easier than spelling or it's accelerationpartners.com if you wanna learn more about uh, what we do. And then uh, I've got stuff I write and podcasts and some some stuff on the experience that's at robert glazer g-l-a-z-e-r.com and we'll put all that in the show notes as well you also wrote an amazing blog post which we're going to reference in next week's episode that gives people some benchmarks to think about and some drivers to think about and we'll put all that at built as well so check that out robert thank you for doing this great thank you john thanks for listening today but Robert Glazer's story is not quite over. Next week in part two of our conversation, I'll speak to Robert about his experience evaluating more than 50 deals from the other side of the negotiation table from the buyer's perspective. I don't think you're going to want to miss a second of this interview. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, so I hope you liked today's episode. You know, if you did and you like this whole building to sell ethos, you might want to give us a follow on the social platforms. There we upload, obviously, every episode of Built to Sell Radio, but also we do blog posts and white papers and ebooks and all kinds of other goodies. Again, all of it on the socials at Built to Sell. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L 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 Thanks for listening.